We're going to be in the letter or the epistle of Peter and Second Peter, and they're uh, close together. So if you don't have a pew Bible, I mean, if you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to use the pew Bible that there is there in front of you, page 1021. We're going to be in First uh, John chapter 2, beginning with verse 14, and then we're just going to turn back probably two or three pages to Second Peter. Uh, as you know, for the last seven months, we've been walking through chapter by chapter the Gospel of John, and our primary focus has been trying to see Jesus, trying to see ourselves, and then trying to trust in Jesus for eternal life. We've, we've been viewing John... Uh, largely through a, an evangelistic lens. How, how can we understand better about Jesus so that when we encounter other people, how can we then tell them in, in, a, in the clearest fashion we're able to about who Jesus is? And here I am two sermons away from my sabbatical, and we've ended John. And if I were going to be here this summer, I think I'd just take up this theme but um, the question that's on my mind after we finished uh, John is, um, what's next? Once you've committed your life to Christ, once you've decided to follow after Christ, once you have seen yourself and you've seen Jesus and you've, you've made that commitment, that step, then is that it? Or is there something else? And if there is something else, then then what's next? And I've... I've chosen to answer that question by using the instructions of these two very capable men. They're men we're familiar with. We've talked a lot about Peter and John through the course of looking at the Gospel of John. We understand that they had to make that commitment to following after Jesus and the difficulties they faced in that. And then they write this uh, memoir, so to speak, on what does it mean then to follow after Christ. And so they, they're some years later now in their faith, they're writing back letters of instructions, not only to the people that they're shepherding, but to us here 2,000 years later. On After you've gotten to the end of John, after you've seen Jesus, after you've witnessed what he's done and you, you've, you've made that commitment, then then this is what's next for those who would call themselves disciples. And so our instructions this morning come from 1 John particularly and next week from 2 Peter, but I want to read both of those passages this morning. So would you stand as we read beginning in 1 John chapter 2, verse 14. 1 John chapter 2, verse 14. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions is not from the father, but is from the world and the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, turn back to second Peter. Chapter one, beginning in verse five. For this very reason, make every effort. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue 
and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You may be seated and let's take a few moments here to reflect on the reading of God's word. And I want to just begin by drawing your attention to the phrase that Peter uses and is the title of this uh, two-week two series here, um, Make Every Effort. Make Every Effort. The, the, there's an emotion behind the, the Greek word here, and it's a, it's a zeal or earnestness or eager swiftness that's 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 the feeling that you're supposed to get you're you're making every effort but there's a sort of an emotion behind it there's a there's a passion behind making effort every effort there's a there's a swift eagerness that is implied in the words that Peter uses so so in terms of the process of your sanctification after you become a Christian after salvation the, the process of your sanctification, it, neither Peter or John is saying, let go and let God. They're, they're saying, no, no, no. <laughs> no, you, you've got to make every effort. And you've got to do it with some swiftness. You have to do it with some earnestness. You have to do it with some zeal. You need to, you need to attack this problem or this issue or, or go through this doorway with, with a passion. The process of sanctification is synergistic, not monergistic. You, you might be familiar with these terms. Synergistic is when you're working together. You might hear the term just, uh, we have a certain synergy when we're working together as a group. But there, there's a certain energy with two or more people working together. And so when, when we're talking about sanctification, that's after salvation as you begin walking out the life of Christ, as you begin to develop the mind of Christ, as you begin to, to follow after him, that's sanctification. And, and that process is synergistic. You have the Holy Spirit working together with your every effort to move in that direction. The, the, the process of salvation is monergistic. There's only one person at work in your salvation. That's Jesus Christ. But after you after you understand that, then there's this process that you're you're making every effort. The quote on uh, the front of your bulletin, I really like by Dallas Willard. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. And so sometimes when you think, well, well, I can't earn this. And so unfortunately, sometimes you think, well, then so I shouldn't make much effort. That's not not true. You can't earn this. Salvation, but in the process of sanctification, there is there is an effort that is required. And you may remember this is the picture that's been in my mind now, really for a year. When I saw this, um, you remember you may remember a year ago today, uh, the Mississippi River was at flood stage, and what they could see is that as the water began flowing down the Mississippi River, it was going to go over its banks in a number of different places. 
And the, the, the Army Corps of Engineers had a difficult decision to make. And that decision was what, whether the, the, the river would just flow over into populated areas or along the river. 70, 80 years ago, they had built these levees or these sort of relief valves that if the river ever got to a certain stage, they can open up these relief valves and take the pressure off the river. But the problem was people had moved in and developed farms in these areas. So the difficult decision was, well, do we let the Mississippi River just overflow into populated areas? You remember this conversation in the news? Or do we open up these levees and it floods a less populated farm area? And it was a tough decision. But they decided to open up the levees and it did flood many people's homes in the farm areas. And this is one of the first pictures that when I saw, gosh, what, a, what, a, what about the effort that went in to save this guy's house? I mean, here he's been warned, hey, we're going to open up this levee. Water is going to overtake your farm. And so you have to do whatever you can do to try to save your dwelling. And so you look at this guy and go, wow, what a lot of work this guy did. He, he made every effort to save what he could of what his belongings were. But time is short. Maybe people don't have the same resources as, as this guy. And then there's this next picture. And I don't know how many times this happened. And I wonder when this guy sees his house on the news, I, I just wonder if he thought, Maybe I could have made a little bit more effort. I mean, I don't know. Maybe he made every every effort and that was just all the time he had. And it's interesting to me that if you notice this picture, there's only one little break, relatively speaking. But the one little break cost him his whole house. See, you can be making every effort in many areas, but if you're not making every effort all the way around, if there if there's some portal, if there's some window, if there's some door into your life, you're just not guarding, you're not making every effort, then you can say, well, look how well I've done. But when you have this picture of your soul, we know it's been flooded out because you haven't made every effort. And so as I speak today, as I speak next week, this is this is the picture I want you to have in your mind. This is the picture I want you to have over the summer. That as you think, OK, this summer, I, I'm going to I'm going to make every effort. I'm going to try to tackle the the weak spot in my spiritual wall. I'm going to try to examine my walls as we go through this text today and next week. And I want to I want to see where the weak spot is. Where is it that I'm not making Every effort. And so John helps us with that. So so what is it your spiritual walls look like? Before John begins to examine that in his letter, he, he reminds us, I think, importantly of the gospel. Because you can if this is your starting point, if making every effort is your starting point, then you're not you don't have the gospel. So he goes in the first first part of his letter. He he just wants to remind us of the gospel before he gets there. First, John, chapter one, verse two, John reminds us that eternal life has stepped in out of eternity and into our world in the person of Jesus Christ. And John got to touch him and got to hold him. He knows that Jesus was real. Verse seven 
It's the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all of our sin. Verse 9 in chapter 1. Those who confess their sin based on the, the life and death of Jesus, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And chapter 2, verse 1. Now we have an advocate before the Father. We have somebody who's advocating on our behalf, and that person is Jesus, so that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's, that's where John wants us to make sure you've taken your first step. Before you take the next step, I want to make sure you stepped onto the gospel, that you understand that, that your salvation is based on Jesus, is not based on what you do. But now that you've taken that step, that's not just, that's not just the first step, it's the first of many steps that now you take in the process of sanctification. First thing he says in verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, there's been a lot of confusion about that phrase because John says, do not love the world here in this letter. But, you know, the famous verse that John also wrote for God. So love the world. Okay, so do not love the world, but God so love the world. I mean, how do I figure that out? And it's really not that complicated. The, the word world can have more than one meaning. One of the meanings can just be the, the planet itself. One of the meanings can be the, the ethical dimensions of the world, which is what John is talking about here. How the world operates. God doesn't love the way the world operates because the world has taken created things and made it the creator made it the person that we want to worship. And that's the world John is saying to us not to love. Now, when, when you read these verses, let's just look at them again. Verse 15 and, and 16, when he says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. These things that are in the world, and then he lists them, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in possessions. You get the sense that John is helping his congregation to be aware of the seduction of the world. I mean, John lived in a time where uh, there was a lot of martyrdom. But that doesn't seem to be his primary concern here. His primary concern isn't somebody coming with a sword. It's coming with a seductive message. And that he's aware that that you can easily be seduced by the world. And he's trying to encourage his disciples. And, of course, this is exceptional counsel as well to us. You and I are unlikely to be in a place where a sword is put up against our chest. But everybody here has a sword of seduction coming at them at full force. Don't, don't be seduced by the world. Recently, I was listening to an interview with a Christian scholar and writer. His name is D.A. Carson. And just when he said this, I had to just replay it and think about it. This is what he said. When you live in a culture where the only reason you work is in order to play, you will undercut the gospel without having a single doctrinal deviation. Let me read that again. When you live in a culture where the only reason you work is in order to play, 
you will undercut the gospel without having a single doctrinal deviation. You hear the seduction that Carson is saying? Rather than every effort being given on behalf of the love of God, every effort is given on, in, in exchange for play. Yes, I'm working hard, but my goal is play. So who's at the center of that goal? You are. I am. And do you see what Carson's saying? And I think he's got it right on. When, when that's the goal, you, you, can, you can seduce a whole church. You can seduce a whole country of churches. They can stand up and keep saying the Apostles' Creed over and over and over again. But they've been completely seduced. Because really at their heart, at the, at the core is all of my hard work, all of my effort, every effort, really is towards myself. It's really not towards God. When you live in a culture where the only reason you work is in order to play, you will undercut the gospel without having, to, having a single doctrinal deviation. Reminds me of the verse in 2 Kings. Even while these people were worshiping the Lord, they were serving their idols. To this day, their children and grandchildren continue to do the same thing. You see, the art of the seduction, a good seducer, makes you believe that you're not being seduced, right? If you know you're being seduced, you go, oh, okay. But the thing is, is you're, you're being drawn in step by step. And First Kings is telling us it's not just affecting you. Your wall that might be broken down, it's not just affecting you. It's affecting your children. It's affecting your grandchildren. So the effort that you make this summer, when you're examining this wall, the spiritual wall around your life, it has a bigger effect than just you. So John gives us a good list here. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride and possessions. If you're reading from the NIV, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of the eyes, the boasting of what he has and he does. I love this this great list because John is not drawing our attention to the culture or the environment. You notice that? What if John said, hey, let me just tell you what the big problems are in the culture today in the first century. Well, they may not be our problems. And you say, well, I guess that fit 2000 years ago, but it's just not very relevant to me. No, no, he doesn't draw, draw your attention to, to the culture. He doesn't draw your attention to the environment. Why? Because that's not where the main problem is in the culture. The main problem is in our environment. The main problem is the condition of our heart. And everybody can examine that. So John says, hey, before you, the, the righteous people in the church start saying, hey, all the problems are with the people or the environment or the government or whatever else outside. He says, no, no, no. The primary problem is in your heart. And let's try to examine those things before we do anything else. The desires of your flesh, the desires of your eyes, the, the pride in your possession, the boasting of what you have and what you do. 
So let's just take these three as our gauges this morning. Let's just take this as part of the wall and you just ask yourself. And again, next week, we'll have some to add to it. Where is it that God would be saying to you this morning? Yeah, that's that's a weak spot in my wall. That's water is flooding in and it's hurting me. It's damaging me. It's damaging my family. What what needs every effort from you this summer? First, the desires of the flesh. We've talked about this word before in the Greek. It's epithemia. It's a it's an over desire. It's taking a good thing and making a God, making it a God thing. That's the seduction of it. You say, hey, this is a good thing. And people say, yes, it is a good thing. But then too much of a good thing becomes a God thing. And then you must have these things. Hunger is a good desire. Gluttony is an over desire. Sleep is a good desire. Laziness is an over-desire. Sex is a good desire. Immorality is an over-desire. John Calvin said it well when he said, The evil in our desires do not lie in what we want, but that we want them too much. Perhaps another way to examine your desires and whether they've gotten out of control is, whether a desire has morphed into a demand. What what has changed from I wish I could have to I must have? As you're examining the wall, your spiritual wall, what, what desire has morphed into a demand? What good thing has become a God thing? Take a minute just to examine the gauge mentally Inspect this part of your spiritual wall. Another commentator says it's it's when it's what you turn to when you're not satisfied with God. I mean, when God's just not doing it for you, what do you go to? That's the desires of your flesh. The desires, secondly, the desires of your eyes when you understand, you understand, don't you, that your eyes eyes have an appetite. Advertisers understand this. Your eyes are hungry. That's why you have this phrase, feast your eyes on this. Why? Because they have an insatiable appetite for things. And so we have to ask ourselves, where, where in our walls, what, what, what have we allowed to come into our eyesight that's really pouring in these, this dirty water into our, our soul? I love this phrase from this sentence from one commentator. It's the tendency to be captivated by the outward show of things without inquiring into their real value. What a great quote. It's, it's the tendency to be captured by this outward show. Oh, wow, that looks terrific. But, but you don't inquire as into its real value. And, and this desire of the eyes is not limited to a sexual desire, although that's the illustration I mean, I'm going to give it. It could be into coveting. It could be into greed. It could be into a number of other things. You could, you could do this with a, any kind of magazine, not just one kind of magazine. 
But, but when I think about this desire of the eyes, I think about this warning from Proverbs 6.25. And every, every man here should hear this. Uh, the, the, the wisdom coming forth from Proverbs 6. Do not lust in your heart after the prostitute's beauty or let her captivate you with her eyes. For she reduces you to a loaf of bread. What a great picture. You're captivated. It looks terrific. It feels like it's going to be terrific. It may feel terrific. But you're captured by the outward show and you've forgotten to evaluate the actual value of it. You've been reduced to a loaf of bread. And in case you might be the rare person thinking, hey, that's not going to take me down. That's not my big problem. I don't need to work or worry about that part in the wall. This captivated the strongest man in the world. Samson. This captured the wisest man in the world. Solomon. And this brought down the most godly man in the world. David. So if you think you're godly and you think you're wise and you think you're strong and you think you're not problem, uh, this isn't a problem for you, you're a fool. That's a weak spot in your wall. So we want to stop. We want to we just want to say, OK, we've got one gauge now. Now we've got this second gauge. I'm looking at my life. I'm looking at my walls. I'm I'm thinking, hey, I'm in I'm in high school I have all these kinds of different things coming at me. My my parents on one side, pressure for my future, a, a girlfriend that I have or don't have or wished I had or whatever the case may be. You're a parent. You feel these pressures are coming at you. You're a businessman. Where where in your spiritual wall is it the desires of your eyes? Are you letting something flood in? You're, you're working so well on these other things, but there's a portal with your eyes that's really washing out the rest of your soul. Finally, your pride and possessions or boasting of what you have and what you do. Hunting for honors. Exaggerating what you have in order to impress. This is what a typical guy does right here. I know it. I see it. I can smell it just if it's very close to me because I'm so familiar with it myself. You have a typical high school guy around a bunch of girls. You've got boasting. You've got exaggerating. Oh, this is what I did. This is what I saw. This is what I can do. It's, a, it's part of the whole dance, right? And the girls nod like they are interested in it. Inside, big yawn. <laughs> I remember this great moment, and, and I always make sure. Zachary has always said, you know, you can just use anything. So I'm taking him at his word. <laughs> we, we're in Flaming Amy's, right? The burrito. You know, everybody knows this. And uh, you're in Flaming Amy's and you're, we've got a burrito and it's just the two of us. 
and another family comes in that we know and they, oh, why don't you come eat with us? Why don't you sit with us? Oh, okay. So the guy picks up the tab for it. It was really a wonderful, you know, providential event for me. And um, so we sit down and I don't know if they still have this, but they used to have what was called the wall of flame. Remember this? It was a thousand hot sauces and they all had titles that you can't mention from a pulpit. Right. And so Zachary went over to get whatever he thought was the hottest sauce. And at the table was a girl that was three years older than him. He was a freshman. She was a senior in high school. And so he got the sauce, right? Oh, you got to have this. You got to. Oh, he's handing it out to everybody. And finally, we're like, everybody's like, no, dude, we don't want that. You, why don't you have it? Well, he's already loaded up a whole chip, right? He's got about four gallons of this sauce on this one chip. that he's been, And he's like, no problem. <laughs> I could smell it. I knew it was coming. I was just watching the train wreck happen right here in Flaming Days. So he throws it down. And we're all staring at it. And, you know, for three seconds, you look fine. But then just uh, sweat started pouring out. All kinds of embarrassing things began to happen to him. You know, and this senior girl was like, who's the bozo, you know, in. But that happens, doesn't it? It, it it, You you boast. You, You stretch out the fish that was this big. To be bigger, you, 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 you make your, your resume just to look, look a little bit better. You, you try to get a little bit bigger in the minds of the people who you're around. You, you take pride in that. You try to stretch yourself out in some way with your degree or what you've done or what you've experienced. One, one of the things that drove me crazy when I got out of college and I worked for the Atlanta Braves for a year, the whole environment circled and swimmed around who you'd met, who you knew, who you talked to. And I, I don't want to say that was bad. It was just maybe that was the business, but it just was unattractive to me. And I thought, well, gosh, when I get into ministry, it won't be like that. Oh, well, it's like that. Because you get around people and they, they want to tell you what's the latest book they read, what conference they went to, who they met, how much I serve at my church. Just trying to stretch them out, themselves out spiritually. I, I want you to think I'm bigger than what I actually am, that I'm really connected to God. I'm trying to make myself something that I feel like that I'm not. Matthew Henry says this, a mind craves all the grandeur and pomp of a vainglorious life. This is ambition and thirst after honor and applause. This is in part the disease of the ear. It must be flattered with admiration and praise. So so is there a problem here with your ear? You just got to have that feedback. So you constantly, because of your painful insecurities, you're trying to always make yourself look bigger, stronger, smarter, faster, more spiritual than you actually are. You're you're hungry for yourself. 
one point just in conclusion, and I wish I had more time, but let's look together at 1 John chapter 1, verse 14. I mean, the first step is just examining, my, being willing to examine myself accurately. What, what needs every effort? What, what place has a weakness? But then you have to say, well, once I've identified it, how do I begin to help that area get shored up? And John tells us here, and just briefly, in these 12, 13, and 14, it's like a poem that John is inserted. And he's talking about little children and fathers and young men. It's probably he means people in the faith, not actual young children, but People are young in the faith, and you have young men, and then you have fathers, people who are older in their faith. And he says this in the end of chapter four, or the end of chapter, or verse 14. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. Okay. These, these are, these are men like the first slide. They're strong. They've, they've got the fortress up. Uh, things are pressing in on every side, but what's made this person strong? What, what can I learn from them? Because of the word of God, it abides in you. Because of that, you've overcome the evil one. So if you, if you find a weak spot, ask yourself, does the word of God dwell in me richly? Would you want everyone to know? Would you want to show everyone your Bible reading habits and Bible memory habits? See, how do you overcome the evil one? How do you overcome the pressure at any side? It's, it's the Word of God. The Word of God is a sword. It's going to fight on your behalf. And the Word of God has to dwell in you richly. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we could spend, oh, so many weeks trying to answer this question. What, what, what's the next step? And so we, we've, we spent so much time trying to think about ourselves and you and, and specifically other people who don't know Jesus and trying to help them see Jesus. But, Lord, help us now see ourselves. Help us to, to examine our our souls to to see where there's a, a break or a weakness in the wall and and to really ask ourselves, are, are we ready? Are we prepared? Are we willing to make every effort? Are we just willing to make a little bit of effort? Uh, maybe just digging this up uh, that, that uh, it requires you, them to, to ask someone else, hey, can, can you look at my walls with me? Can you, can you examine my life with me? I'm afraid that I wouldn't see it closely myself. Could you help? Could you help in shoring up this weak spot? Lord, I pray for these brothers and sisters, these young ones, these children, the fathers of the faith, that they would be strong in the Word of God, that the Word of God would, would dwell in them richly.
Lord, as we stand here, there's so many people so, so near to this building that need help. So near to us, we go home, so many people just right around living in slavery in all kinds of ways. Perhaps enslaved by their own desires. And they're just now seeing that that what they've invested in has reduced them to a loaf of bread. And they're just now hungry for somebody to step into their life with the gospel. So help us, help us to know how to use our time, our money, our resources for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.